Welcome to the IMS Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Barber, and we are so excited that you've joined us today. At IMS, we provide consultative trial and expert services for the most influential global firms. Through our work, we get to connect with the most sought after subject matter experts and sharpest attorneys, enabling us to deliver timely and important perspectives for you on critical trends and issues in technology, policy, industry, and law. Today, we're speaking with a very special guest from our network, Manisha Sheth, about Quinn Emanuel's new Me Too practice and what the movement means for in-house counsel and for employers. Sheth is co-chair of Quinn Emanuel's government and regulatory litigation practice and the firm's sexual harassment and employment discrimination practice. A seasoned trial lawyer with more than 20 years of experience in both private practice and government prosecutions, Sheth was lead attorney on one of the most high-profile cases during the residential mortgage-backed securities crisis. Today, her practice focuses on complex civil litigation, white-collar criminal, and internal investigations. Sheth recently served as Executive Deputy Attorney General for the Division of Economic Justice at the Office of the New York Attorney General, where she supervised all of the office's complex commercial investigations and enforcement actions in the areas of antitrust, securities fraud, cybersecurity and data privacy, consumer fraud, and government contracts fraud. Sheth has extensive experience representing both plaintiffs and defendants in a wide range of complex commercial disputes, including breach of contract, and was lead attorney on several high-profile investigations and litigations. During her tenure at the U.S. Attorney's Office, Sheth conducted numerous long-term grand jury investigations and prosecutions for a range of federal crimes, including healthcare fraud, financial institutions fraud, and regulatory crimes. She was nominated for Attorney General's Award for Outstanding Service by a New Employee in 2005, the Federal Bar Association's Younger Federal Lawyer Award in 2008, and was recently recognized in Crane's 40 Under 40. We are delighted to speak with Manisha today and grateful to have you join us in our discussion. Welcome, Manisha. So I want to talk a little bit about corporate responsibility um, with respect to the Me Too movement. Um, you know, there's there's been a lot of interesting, a lot of studies, a lot of reports over the last few years. Um, University of California, San Diego, Center on Gender Equity and Health released a study recently following up to their 2018 work. Um, there's also been some interesting counter discussions on Me Too throughout social media with almost what sounds like paralyzed frustration. Um, you know, we've seen reports and studies sh- suggesting that some men feel that they shouldn't mentor women or should avoid having one-on-one meetings with women. Uh, Market Watch reported Market Watch reported this year on research conducted by Lean In that 60% of male managers were reporting that they were uncomfortable mentoring, socializing, or working alone with women in the workplace, up from 46% in 2018. Is it possible for companies and employers to create a productive, inclusive, and safe environment? And does it make business sense to do so? Yes. I mean, not only is it possible for companies and employers to create such an environment, but numerous studies have confirmed that it it makes economic sense. It makes business sense for companies to foster such an environment because that will improve productivity across all of their employees. And, you know, it, it is it is troubling to me to hear that, um, you know, that this is a consequence or um, a result of the Me Too movement. And it it you know i appreciate the fact that individuals may be taking an effort to 
to avoid being placed in a situation where such um, harassment or discrimination can occur. But I think it it just has a negative, it, it can't be the solution that um, men should not mentor women or should avoid having one-on-one meetings or interaction with women. I mean, that type of approach is extremely counterproductive because it deprives women of opportunities and ad- for advancement and development. Um, and a, a company that that engages in such um, such measures is not really helping the cause and is in fact putting women um, at a greater disadvantage in terms of career development. And you think about you know statistics that we have it's fewer than seven percent of Fortune 500 CEOs are women today right. in 2019, and even fewer women of color. So it's certainly interesting. Um, you know, and we've been seeing a lot of public discourse about microaggressions and unconscious bias in the workplace. Um, the Harvard Business Review has been conducting research over the last three years on uh, the Me Too movement and workplace sexual harassment. This year, that study found that while blatant sexual harassment had declined from 66% to 25%, there's been a significant increase in Me Too gender harassment uh, up to 92% from mid-70s. Um, that kind of suggests the way the Harvard Business Review researchers were suggesting um, that that suggests a concerning backlash in the American workplace, like you were discussing, how would you suggest employers take responsibility at a senior level for workplace harassment and prevention, and what can leaders do to fix this workplace culture problem? Right, that that's a great question, and those statistics are extremely troubling. Um, well, at first, I would say there's got to be a commitment um, at the highest level of the company, and that's probably the best way to change culture. Um, Second, it's important to have a a timely and rigorous process for dealing with complaints. So taking complaints seriously, having a prompt investigation when you get such a complaint, um, to do a thorough and appropriate investigation when you get a complaint. And that would include um, collecting, segregating, securing, and preserving relevant evidence. Um, It would involve an interview process that um, consists of interviewers and investigators who um, are compassionate but yet neutral um, and also trauma-informed. So they are conducting the interviews in a way that makes sense in this context. Also, it's important to have uh, measures, uh, whether they're disciplinary, um, uh, and that could include warnings, mandatory training, suspensions, terminations, or some combination thereof for the alleged perpetrator of such conduct. And it's important to also have interim measures because an investigation uh, can take time to complete, and there should be in place some interim measures to ensure uh, that you know there's not an opportunity for the alleged misconduct, if it is happening, to continue to happen during the pendency of the investigation. And then finally, to have measures in place that I would describe as corrective measures or go-forward measures to prevent such future occurrences from occurring. Um, uh, and these may involve structural changes or changes to the policies and procedures at the company. What are the consequences for for businesses that can't fix that culture or don't take those steps? Well, I think we're seeing that the consequences um, 
are becoming increasingly more severe. Uh, so there, you know, obviously can be direct actions against the company in the form um, under theories of vicarious liability, but also we're seeing a rise in recent years in the number of cases where the company is being held responsible for failing to take action, failing to investigate complaints, failing to take corrective or remedial action, um, or from a disclosure perspective, failing to disclose uh, the financial and legal risk associated with such uh, complaints. Um, we're also seeing that the line between private conduct and company business is getting blurred in the sense that what senior executives do behind closed doors is now the board's business if it generates legal and financial risk for the company or results in the diversion um, or waste of company resources in the form of settlements um, or severance payments. And so I think we're seeing a, a trend where cases are allowing for relief beyond the single victim and the single perpetrator, but are now um, geared toward, towards addressing this misconduct in, um, in preventing ha it from happening in the future to other individuals. Let's talk a little bit about the future of the legal system with respect to Me Too. How have Me Too cases evolved over the recent years, and where do you see these cases going in the future? Um, in the first instance, we're seeing cases where the company may be liable to the victim based on the acts of its executives or other employees, and this would be under a vicarious theory of liability. Um, and to the extent the company tolerated such misconduct, we may also see a theory of liability that's based on respondeant superior or some sort of ratification of the conduct. But in addition to those traditional theories, we're seeing more recently um, a trend towards uh, shareholder derivative actions against the company's board of directors based on a failure to act once they've learned about complaints of sexual harassment or discrimination. And also cases where, um, as a result of multiple settlements or severance payments, there could be allegations that the management committed waste or breached their fiduciary duties by approving such settlements and authorizing such large payouts. So one notable example is, a, um, is the shareholder derivative suit. Uh, against Wynn Resorts. In February of 2018, the Wall Street Journal exposed allegations that Steve Wynn had engaged in a long-standing pattern of sexual harassment and assault against Wynn employees. And in response, um, a shareholder derivative suit was filed against the board of directors of Wynn Resorts. And the complaint alleged that the directors knew about but did not disclose this pattern of misconduct. And by doing so, or by failing to do so, they breached their fiduciary duties. And they issued public reports that concealed this um, information, which would be deemed to be material information about Steve Wynn from their shareholders and also from regulators. And this exposed the company to the potential for billions of dollars uh, of losses and the risks of losses. And so that, um, I mean, that was one of the, the most notable shareholder derivative cases. And it's telling because just recently the case survived a motion to dismiss. And it illustrates how um, the court that decided that case uh, has departed from former precedent 
and um, maybe will provide some uh, potential for these kinds of cases to go forward um, and survive motions to dismiss. It's clear that you are leading a movement here and, um, you know, investing quite a bit of passion and quite a bit of drive into this practice. What you've got to have some hopes and some goals for this. So what are you hoping to achieve by starting a Me Too practice with Quinn Emanuel? And, you know, just thinking not just at the firm, but more broadly, what are your what are, what's your vision for this, Manisha? So in the immediate term, uh, our vision is to level the playing field, um, both in the context of filed litigation and also pre-complaint settlement discussions. I think in the more intermediate term, our goal is as a result of of the Me Too movement um, and as a result of existing litigation and future litigation, that companies will affirmatively Um, and voluntarily improve their internal policies and procedures so that if and when complaints of discrimination or harassment arise, they're addressed promptly and that they're investigated appropriately. And then, you know, in the long term, and this is always long term, we are looking for a change in culture and a change in mindset. And hopefully, if if we're successful, um, uh, you know, th- there won't be a need for this practice, right? This kind of conduct will be eliminated, um, not only because it's it's inappropriate, but also because it just it doesn't make financial sense or business sense from the company's perspective. Right. Excellent. Um, and, and I want to ask you also, mentorship is something that we track that, um, you know, definitely we're, we're seeing it on the rise and becoming increasingly important in corporate America, but it's also incredibly important for law firms, um, for succession planning and for talent retention. Can you talk to me about how mentoring, um, if it has, how it shaped your career uh, and you as a leader? Yes, I think um, mentoring, uh, I mean, there, there's different, uh, I know the term sponsorship has been also uh, thrown out in recent years. I think um, mentorship and sponsorship has been uh, a huge part of my success um, as a lawyer. Uh, you know, I've, I, no one else in my family is a lawyer. I come from a family of, of two doctors hmm. who probably weren't thrilled that I decided to go to <laughs> law school. Um, but uh, so I think all of this was new to me in the sense of, you know, not having someone in the family who had gone to law school and, and could counsel me on on um, various career issues, but I feel that I've been very blessed and fortunate to have worked with so many talented individuals throughout the course of my career, both in private um, practice but also in the public sector, to have mentors who I can go to and you know ask the tough questions, um, you know talk about career moves because I have moved from public to from private to public back to private again and to have you know frank discussions about that and you know people who have taken the time to um, really develop my skills as a lawyer and so you know now that that I'm more senior I definitely um, want to do that and pass that forward going forward to um, to younger lawyers uh, because I think it's it's you know I don't I don't know how helpful it is to have a formal mentorship process, but I think, you know, um, particularly here at Quinn, where a lot of those relationships grow organically through the course of working on, on matters and cases with people, it's just a, a wonderful way to, to, um, to really be an example for younger lawyers and to um, help them further their career and really, um, you know, uh, help them to be successful as, as up, up, up and coming lawyers. 
So Manisha, can you talk to me a little bit about the evolution of Me Too cases and, and how, how do NDAs fit into that? Yes, that's a great question. Um, so NDAs, uh, non-disclosure agreements, uh, have been used in settlements for, for many, many years. And there recently have um, uh, been a lot of public discourse about whether they should be used, whether they should be eliminated, or whether they should be restricted in any way. And, you know, there, there are pros and cons uh, to NDAs. On the one hand, um, they can be used, and historically they have been used, to ensure that either the misconduct or the settlement resolving such misconduct ever sees the light of day. Um, And that has the effect of preventing other victims uh, from coming forward uh, with their allegations of misconduct. You know, one one, um, very recent example is the Weinstein matter, which uh, involved numerous NDAs, uh, non-disclosure agreements in the settlements. And, you know, it it took about 20 years for the misconduct uh, that he was responsible for to to come to light. Um, And so as a result of that, uh, I think since 2018, lawmakers in about 26 states and the District of Columbia have introduced bills to restrict the use of NDAs in instances of sexual harassment and assault. But um, only 12 of these states have actually passed new laws, and only New Jersey has gone so far as to effectively negate an NDA by making them unenforceable if a victim uh, violates their provisions. So um, it is a challenging area. It's an area where I think we will see um, increased uh, increased legislation. Um, and it may not be to eliminate them in their entirety because they may have some benefit to the victim who may have an interest in keeping uh, the details of, of the event private. And it also may facilitate reaching a settlement if, um, if the allegations are not uh, in the public domain. So I think, you know, we're likely to see greater legislation that will impose um, either limits or some form of restrictions on the use of those NDAs rather than an outright ban. Thank you, Manisha. Uh, well, Manisha, thank, it's been wonderful speaking with you today. Um, really compelling topic and um, really just appreciate you taking the time to join us for IMS Insights. Well, thank you, Teresa. You've had some great questions and I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks again to Manisha Sheth for taking the time to talk with us and explore the Me Too movement and implications for commercial litigators, in-house counsel, employers, and survivors. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast above and check out our other resources on our website, expertservices.com. If there's a topic or matter you'd like to, to learn more about or see featured in a future podcast episode, reach out to our editorial team through the IMS website or by email at editor at expertservices.com or tweet us at expertservices. Thanks again for joining and we look forward to exploring more insights with you in our next IMS Insights podcast.